0: Well, this is week three of our introduction to the book of Joshua. We've been introduced with the author, found out that he just didn't show up on the scene, that this was a man who faithfully through the years served under the authority of Moses. He knew how to follow, and so he was qualified to lead. Last week we talked about the people and their attitude and this second attempt to go into the promised land, and they'd had forty years out in the desert of failure that uh, we had sinned and we had turned away from the Lord and they were fed up with failure. And you never enter into full grace until you're just sick of yourself, sick of failure. You're just tired of it, man. You just, you've tried everything and it doesn't work. Well, the reason it didn't work is because you were in the middle of trying to do it. And it's amazing when you pull back and let God do it, how able He is to do everything and live that life in and through us. Uh, we also learned that the book of Joshua... Is a spiritual preaching book that it's just not history, it is absolutely parallel to our Christian lives. That the Red Sea is a picture of when we got saved, that the wandering through the wilderness toward the promised land, the promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. We enter over the Jordan, which is a picture of understanding all that we, that all that God accomplished on the cross for us. When you go through the Red Sea, we understand that we died that he died for us. We got saved. We go through the Jordan into the promised land. We understand that we died with him and that now he was going to give us the land. We're not going to work for it. He's going to give it to us. Fight, but not work. So this is the third week. We're going to talk about introduction because we will never go into a book of the Bible without fully understanding the context of the book itself. Manifest destiny was never a document signed into the American political process. Manifest destiny was an attitude. It was a, a thought back in the mid-19th century that God, by His providence, had given us the North American continent, and it was His will that Americans conquered the land, took the land, and possessed the land. It was called manifest, something that's very clear, manifest destiny that God had destined for the early settlers to spread across this northern continent and become America. Now, in the process of it, we stole Texas, I'm sorry, we annexed Texas from Mexico. Texans are very sensitive about this subject, And along with that process, we literally pushed the American Indian off the scene in such infamous scenes as the Trail of Tears as we forced the Cherokee and other nations to walk to the West through snow and and tormenting situations. So we, in effect, stole this land. Of course, the Indians wouldn't say that because they don't believe they ever possessed the land, but we wanted the possession of it. Well, whether that's true or not, whether manifest destiny really was true, whether it's God's will for us to take over this continent is questionable. But one thing is not questionable, that it was manifest destiny. It was the clear providence of Almighty God that Israel possessed the land of Canaan. God had told them, Jehovah God, to go in and take the land, that the land was theirs. Well, there's a situation we need to address this morning before you ever get to the book of Joshua because this is, the, this is the stopping point. This is the number one place any atheist, any agnostic, any hater of God or even reasonably thinking person will always ask. How is it that a loving God can command armies to go into a land and commit... Genocide. How can a loving God command Joshua and the armies to go into Canaan and kill the men, the women, the children, the animals, and commit genocide? It's a dilemma, is it not? Some think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was grumpy and mean and had a chip on his shoulder and pushed people around. Well, he saw that didn't work, so in the New Testament, he became kind and loving and gentle in <laughs> Jesus Christ. But nothing could be farther from the truth. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible clearly says in Habakkuk 3, in fact, this is the Lord speaking, I am the Lord, I change not. Amen. So we must solve this dilemma. Got a bunch of verses I want you to look at, and then we will look at some actually reading out of the Bible. This is the verse where God told them to do it in Deuteronomy twenty sixteen a in case you have a question about whether I'm telling you the truth in this This is the Lord commanding Moses. When they get up to the promised land, God says, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. On your way up to Canaan land, deal with the kings in such and such a way. But when you get to that Canaan land, this is how you are to deal with them. And you shall devote them to complete destruction. Now in case you're wondering if Israel, pulled that off. This is what it says after the battle of Jericho. It says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of of the sword. Don't try to clean that up. It's as ugly as it appears. Children were thrust through with the sword. Well what's the answer to this great dilemma? How are we as believers to fully answer their questions? Years ago I was in a college class surrounded by a group of atheists. There was 30 of them, and there was me and God. They were outnumbered at that point. This is what they brought up. This is what they will always bring up. And Christians are to have a fair answer to this question. Well, first of all, we need to understand some things. First of all, This is a phrase out of a song in Exodus after Pharaoh's armies were swamped by the Red Sea. The seas overcame them. The children of Israel were on the right side of the shore. They had made their way up. And this amazing song, you ought to read it. It's in Exodus 15. And I don't know if this was a spontaneous song. I mean, how much time did they have to do to write this long song? This was a moment of deliverance. You understand these people were in bondage. They went through the Red Sea on dry land. They got up on the shore. The Pharaoh's army were chasing them. The, the, the sea collapsed on the Pharaoh's army. Wagon Chariot wheels are floating up on the shore. Bodies are floating in that sea. Complete deliverance from the enemy that would kill them. And they break out into this amazing song. Who wrote it? I don't know. It just... Did they have 10 minutes? Did they just? But this is about the third or fourth line. I want you to see that. Jehovah is a man of war. The Lord, they sang, is a man of war. You need to understand that God, all through the scripture, Old Testament and New, is seen as a warrior God. He is at war, and he is a man of war. Notice Psalm 24, 8. The psalmist writes, Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The psalmist asks. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Just before the armies march toward Jericho, Joshua is confronted with a man with a sword. Looking like a man with a sword. Because he asks the man, are you a friend or are you a foe? And the man steps forward with his sword, with his warrior armor, and he says this. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ saying that I am the true commander of these forces. There he is. Seen as the man of war. I want to turn to Revelation 18 in case you think this is just in the Old Testament. Actually, 19. Revelation 19. You may turn there if you'd like or just listen along. Verses 11 through 16. This has not happened yet. This will happen. Amen. We will see this happen. Amen. One of the great reasons to study and know your Bible is that in these end times when you see this happen, you can step back and go, I knew that would happen. I knew that was coming because I read it. Revelation 19, 11 says this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, notice, he judges, he makes war. He doesn't settle the war, he makes the war. He stirs it up. He brings the battle to the forces. I'm fascinated that when the Israelites showed at the the border that the land wasn't empty, God could have done that. Or that the land was full of dead bodies. He could have stopped all of the hearts of the Canaanites dead on the ground. He could have caused a disease to spread through the land and decimate it. He could have done a thousand things. But when they showed up, they were there to fight. And God made war with them. It goes on in Revelation. And the one sitting is faithful and true. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head, this is Jesus Christ. And on his head, and his eyes were a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe, notice, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, that's us, that's you and I, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. Notice from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike The nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is our God. He is a warrior king. He is a man of war. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written. King of kings. And Lord of lords. So mark it down. This is the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New. Well, the question remains, how could God command the Israelites to commit genocide? How is he any more justified in what he's done than the suicide bombers of the Muslim faith that come in and blow people up or buildings down? You need to understand. We need to understand. Genesis 15, 16. You need to understand what was going on in the land and how patient God was in the land of Canaan. There were sins being committed in this land, and you'll see some of them in just a moment that God was patiently waiting for the people to repent of. This is a statement made to Abraham when he had been told that his descendants would cover the land and take the land. And he was offering a sacrifice of heifers cut up and, and different animals and he fell into a trance, a sleep, a, a dark dream, if you will. And he tells them that your descendants will spend 400 years down in Egypt. And that he would bring them out in a mighty hand. But God was waiting those 400 years for this. Watch this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why the wait? Why four generations? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The King James is not yet full. God was patiently waiting for the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Pejacites, all those peoples down there to repent and stop their sinning. And God was waiting until that cup was full. How patient and loving is God. Who did they have down in Canaan to warn them? I can tell you three I know from the Bible. One was Abraham. Abraham visited that land and walked that land and was in contact and he wasn't perfect before them. Kind of messed up with a few of the kings. But he was a righteous witness as he walked through Canaan. And then you have the king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. He lived in Canaan. He was a priest of Jehovah God. They had their witness. Also, they watched the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. They watched the fire and the brimstone rain down and they continued in their sin in Canaan. Most likely they looked at the fire and brimstone as a natural catastrophe. But what was a natural catastrophe for them was the judgment of Almighty God. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every natural catastrophe, whether a hurricane, tsunami, or such, is the judgment of God. But don't we quickly attribute it to simply a natural disaster when it could be God's waking a nation up, attempt to reach a people. It's possible. It is possible. And they ignored it and went on into their sin until it was full. Couple things before we move on. First of all, you need to know the land was never the Canaanites, it was God's. God didn't take anything away from anyone. In fact, the land wasn't really the Israelites, because later on, when they sinned, he took it away from them. That's a good lesson to know. Years ago, I worked over at Arlington Post Office and I had a cubicle. That I worked to sell stamps there 's four or five of them up front, and I liked where I was. I had set up my little home there. I, I liked the position and the whole deal with the boss down downtown they 'd put cameras up and they wanted to move around the folks so they could keep a better eye on either me or somebody else i don 't know why the move, but he moved me two doors down and I, I, I told my boss I said, well tell him, tell him that 's my spot that 's my spot and The message came from Mr. Vogelpool from downtown, tell Gaylor that he doesn't have a spot, the post office has a spot. And I said, yes, sir, I'll move wherever you want me to move. That land was not the Canaanites' land. It was God's land. No, number two, I want you to see the sin that was in the land. Deuteronomy 18. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 18. Some of these I'll have up on slides. Some of them I just want to read to you. Deuteronomy Chapter 18, it's the first, within the first five books, it's after the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 and 11. This is a warning to the nation of Israel um, about their conduct in the land. This is a warning not to become like the people of the land. Uh, It begins, I, I suppose, let's begin in verse 9 of chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. This tells you what was going on in the land. The Lord says, when you come into the land that the Lord God is giving you, and that phrase is so many times, it's so repetitive. God had a purpose for that. He kept wanting to tell them, this is the land I'm giving you. He goes on and says, you shall not learn to follow the abomin- abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. They were offering their children to the god Moloch. The Lord had a fascinating way of describing this. He described it as they were passing their children through the fire. Now if you think about that, they thought they were sacrificing, burning to their god. But when they took an innocent little baby, tossing him into the fire, they were really passing him through the fire into the loving hands of God. And he took them up. But they sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. It goes on, to says, Anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or as a saucer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer go look that up google that or one who not now or one who inquires for the dead for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord and because God makes it very clear and because of these abominations The Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispose. That's what was going on down the land. And God had had enough of it and had waited for them to repent. They were not. And he was coming to judge Also in that culture, which is easy for us to understand, was a thing called blood retaliation. Works like this. By the way, it works like this now in the Middle East still. If you kill someone of my nation, I am committed to kill someone of your nation. Take the sweetest, kindest mother who is a Muslim kill her husband, her brothers, her children in a fight and she will strap on a suicide vest and walk in and blow up the enemy. Blood retaliation. So for the Israelites to leave anyone in the land is to invite blood retaliation within their own culture. There would be no peace in the land. Follow me? Let's move on. This is a statement in a commentary by G. Campbell Morgan. You need to understand that God is perpetually at war with sin. He is at war with sin. God hates sin because it is sin that destroys us. He is at war at sin in your life. He is at war with sin in our culture. God is perpetually at war with sin now i want to bring up a question at this point um, brought up by david platt a preacher in alabama a couple years ago he made this statement got in a lot of trouble for it and i think he got in a lot of trouble for it because he didn't explain it fully perhaps he didn't know how to explain it fully because if you just say it it's very offensive if you understand it fully then you get it he asked the question does god hate the sinner Now, our standard line is God loves the sinner and hates the sin, which is true. But he asked the question, does God hate sin or the sinner? Does God hate the sinner? His response was, yes, yes. But he failed to tell you two things. So I want you to go to Psalms chapter 5. You need to understand this as they march into the land. Psalm chapter five, verses five and six. Easy for us preachers to throw out a verse, and without fully explaining it, be misunderstood. Psalms chapter five, verse six, five and six. Psalms chapter five, verses five and six. It says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The psalmist said, the Lord's eyes. You hate all evildoers. Verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Platt in explaining this to his congregation said maybe I should have told the press rather than God hates the sinner that God abhors the sinner. We need to understand a couple things. Anytime in scripture it talks about God hating the sinner it is always in the context of those who tell lies those who destroy those who hurt. It's, It's the length and extremity of the sinner that becomes an Adolf Hitler or someone who slanders to hurt and destroy others. It isn't perhaps the -the run-of-the-mill lost sinner who perhaps is morally good. It's the one who has run the gamut and become hateful, hurtful, destroying people's lives. God hates that sinner in the sense that he's hurting others. The second point you need to understand, and it's the larger of the two points, when the, when the Bible says God hates the sinner, we use the word hate coming from a, a heart of selfishness. God's definition of hate, and when He hates, it comes out of a heart of love. In other words, His ways are above our ways. So if you take the human language and you use the word hate for God, and we, and we attribute it to how We might hate. We pull him down to our level and totally misunderstand it. God hates the sinner who is damaging and hurting others because he loves that sinner so much that it's destroying him and everyone around him. God hates sin because he loves intensely. In fact, if God did not hate those who were throwing their children in the fire, and hate the sin down in Canaan, then God could not be a God of love. God is still perpetually at war with sin in this world. And as you read in Revelation, He is coming back to judge. If He did not cut, well, let me get to the next slide. If He had not cut the cancer out of Canaan land at this point of history, then the world that you're living in right now would be unlivable. If you don't think that the succeeding generations of people affect where you're at now as a culture, you don't know history. You're living as a result of decisions, let's say, Paul made in gospel preaching. Remember when Paul? was trying to go east, and God said, no, I want you to go west. Very simple move by God to move Paul west. Well, that took the gospel west, not that he didn't care about the east, but you find the western hemisphere was influenced by the gospel, eventually reaching the east, but you see how thousands of years ago a decision made affects our culture now. Do you know that most of the people in America, most, not all, that migrated over were from the Galatia area? That those in the Galatia area moved up into northern Europe and by by large, not not exactly, but they were the people that came over. I find that fascinating because when you get the book of Galatians, Paul says, I'm amazed how fastly you're moved off the topic. I'm amazed at how fickle you are. I'm amazed that you get the grace of God now and so easily somebody moves you in a different... Well, what is America but a fickle country? Moving left and right and left and right, never knowing what it's going to do. You see how the cultures affect over the centuries. If God did not come down into that land and cut the cancer out, what do you do when you take cancer to the doctor? You got a lump in your stomach? You say, Doc, give me some painkillers and a few aspirin, maybe a little antibiotics. I'll come see you in a couple years. You don't do that. You say, open me up, cut it out, give me chemo, I want to live. Your only chance at a healthy life is to cut the cancer out. If God didn't remove this sinful people from the land, God could have found a different land for the Israelites. It all belongs to Him. He could have camped them out in northern Africa, but He didn't. Because if He didn't cut this out, The sin that was in that country would have spread throughout the world. And I'm telling you, you think it's bad now. You cannot imagine the world we would be. How gracious of God to commit this. Tell you another thing about the, the, the difficulty people have with the children. The difficulty. That God came in and killed little babies. Well, if those babies had grown up in that culture, they would have become sinful Canaanites and been destined to hell. When the sword was shot through those little innocent children, instantly they were in the hands of Almighty God who took them in. He saved multitudes of little ones from the fires of hell itself. How gracious of God. Last point, and we'll wrap this section up. If God does not judge sin, then God cannot be a God of love. He cannot. I don't believe in a God of love who allows sin to go on. He will judge it. He'll judge it in your life. Do you know that? He'll judge it in your life. As a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you, and when we do wrong, is He not quick to point it out? We leave pockets in our lives And God will never stop warring against that pocket of flesh. He just won't. He will not be content until you are free from sin. Free from flesh. Which will be in glory up there. But you can become more free down here than ever before. Without knowing it, Larry gave us a double meaning for our be strong and conquer. Throughout the series... The flip side of that is be selfish continually. Isn't that not us? He will never be content with our self-centeredness. He will never be content to allow sin to remain in our lives. He will fight it. He will battle with it. He will cut it out. And He has through the cross of Jesus Christ. When those Israelites went in, God wanted a land of prosperity. I'll tell you one more warning I forgot to the land of Canaan and to the Canaanites. How good the land was. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. The grapes were like bowling balls. It was an amazing land. And the goodness of God to those Canaanites should have led them to repentance. Might I say the goodness of God to the nations of the world not only america but other nations the goodness of god should lead them to the repentance to god and it does not god how gracious he is the verdict is not on god who is unloving and unfair to go in and take this he is a warrior god he is a man of war he had waited long enough for these people to turn from their sin He would save all the little tiny children from growing up in the culture and going to hell. How good and gracious God is. Do you know, and I'll leave you with this. Do you know in the book of Revelation, during the great tribulation, there will be more people saved, born again, than in all the church age. John saw the multitude on the shores, on the land, and he didn't recognize them. If it had been the church, he would have known it. He said, he asked the angel, who are they? And the angel said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. What brought those multitudes to Christ? His judgment of sin. The warrior God on the white horse who judges sin. That's what brought them to Christ. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Lamb of God who shed His blood. He is the Lion of Judah who comes to conquer.